Now we're going to turn in our Bibles to Nehemiah chapter 1. I know David Canning I preached from this passage very helpfully a few weeks ago, but I've decided to return there just as we carry on our series, uh, Nehemiah chapter 1, for a slightly different perspective. Don't tell him he's not here. <laughs> yeah, Nehemiah chapter 1. Let's read from God's Word these uh, 11 verses uh, together. And this is what God says. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now it happened in the month of Kislev in the 20th year, as I was in Susa, the citadel, that Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates are destroyed by fire. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days, and I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people, whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Now I was cupbearer to the king. I'm lend a reading at the end of chapter one. What do um, Arnold Schwarzenegger, Donald Trump and Vladimir Zelensky have in common? Well, the answer is, as we get a picture of them up on the screen, I'm sure you know what they look like. They all were TV stars before they became political leaders of people. And each of them, unexpectedly so, Arnold Schwarzenegger, Donald Trump, and Vladimir Zelensky. Uh, if I told you at the height of, um, of his Terminator fame, I'll be back and all that, uh, that uh, his uh, obvious uh, lack of uh, acting ability, let's be fair, uh, that Arnie was going to be governor of California which, if it were a country in its own right, would be the fifth largest economy on the planet, well, you wouldn't have believed me. I mean, he wouldn't have believed you himself. Trump, uh, Donald Trump, even less likely, as he hired and fired on The Apprentice USA, would one day be hiring and firing at the top of the government of the, as president of the United States. And he did plenty of hiring and firing, didn't he? 
Zelensky, of course, he has impressed everyone in the West with his uh, bravery, an example of staying put in Kiev uh, without wishing to immortalize someone who, uh, who's unlikely to be pure white. Uh, no one expected such steel and resolve and fight in the Ukrainians and in their former TV star leader. TV stars aren't generally known for their real world bravery, are they? But sometimes, sometimes the unexpected comes to be. Truth is often stranger than fiction. As we begin Nehemiah this morning, it's important to remind ourselves that we are treating these two as one book. Ezra and Nehemiah belong together. Uh, In my understanding of scripture, as far as I'm concerned, they have the same author. They belong together. And as we turn the page from that most difficult of um, lists of names, which I'm still reading from at the end of Ezra, uh, we turn the page to Nehemiah, and our attention is drawn back to Babylon. Back to Babylon, for it's there, it's here, that Nehemiah finds himself. It's the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, that's 445 BC, that's 13 years or so after Ezra arrived in Jerusalem in chapter 7 of Ezra. Nehemiah, he's he's a Jew with a Jewish name, a name that means the Lord comforts. He's he's working for the king of the empire. He's working for the king of Persia. The last verse that we read tells us that. I was cupbearer to the king. Now that is not a low-paid job or a stopgap between jobs sort of job. No, with constant access and a great level of trust, in controlling what the king allowed past his lips was a very important rule, for he tasted first before the king was allowed to. Nehemiah was an officer of high rank in the royal courts. He he had a very prominent position. His face would have been well known in the public uh, domain. He was known. The Persian Empire has by this stage reached its height And in terms of land, territory, it's on the screen there. The the green area is massive in scale. This is the Persian Empire uh, in this day. It it extends all the way west uh, to to parts of Greece and all the way east uh, to India and all the way south to parts of Egypt. But there are rumblings in the empire. There there are a series of revolts going on which result in instability and tension and where else but at the edges of the empire as usual. That's where you get trouble, isn't it? Things have kicked off in Egypt in particular and Judah in the area that's known as beyond the river there on the map. Judah is kind of like a buffer between Egypt and the rest of the empire. So what happens in Jerusalem is really important to King Artaxerxes because it's like a buffer between it and where all the trouble is. Sounds like the world we live in a little bit too, doesn't it? So security is important to to, to King Artaxerxes because he's also buffered because he's there in his winter residence in the citadel, that word means fortress, in the city of Susa, that's his winter uh, fortress, he's there um, holed up for the winter uh, and that's, uh, that's, he's buffered there. But he's also concerned about what goes into his mouth because not only um, as any king uh, of the empire in those days, uh, he's only ever one drop of poison from an early grave. And so Nehemiah is entrusted as the buffer uh, to the king's 
consumption. Let's talk about word of mouth this morning. While uh, Nehemiah is there in Susa, uh, serving uh, the king, uh, he has a visit, doesn't he? And it's from one of his brothers. His name is Hanani, and with this uh, mention, he's also mentioned in chapter 7, verse 2, the way that's worded as well in particular, we've reason to believe this is his actual brother, proper brother, brother as we understand it. Brother in terms of, uh, you know, the New Testament Christian brother is, is actually more of a New Testament type word. It's not that common in the Old Testament to talk like that about your fellow believer. So this is his actual brother. Hanani is with certain men of Judah. Uh, We aren't sure why these men have arrived in Babylon. Maybe they're there on business. Perhaps his brother has come with some other family news to bring to Nehemiah. But in either case, they haven't arrived to tell the news that we hear about alone. Because Nehemiah has has to ask. He has to inquire about it. And he asks them about the people. Uh, the Jews who have escaped, the survivors of the exile, the remnants who are there in Jerusalem. And he also asked them about Jerusalem itself. That's a bit of a glimpse, isn't it, into the heart of Nehemiah. What about the people, he says. Tell me about the people and tell me about the condition of the city of God. That's what he's interested in. He wants to know about both of them. And the reply he gets is not good or encouraging or sugar-coated. The people, that comes first. Well, they, Hanani says, are in great trouble and shame. Uh, They're in trouble, they're ashamed, they're disgraced, they're subject to taunting and reproach. That's the idea here. That's the people. What about the city? It's next. He's told the wall of Jerusalem is broken down, verse 3, and the gates are destroyed by fire. It's in ruins it's in rubble and cinders it's in it's in a bad way we don't have uh, walls around belfast anymore Uh, if we did we'd probably be at the eastern edge right now of those walls but but we don't but but of course we can think about we can think about Derry's walls it's easy to think about and to remember the importance of walls as the security of an ancient city and history reminds us of that that story of of those walls as well we can think about that the people and the city are, of course, linked in their, in their status because the state of the city impacts the morale of the people. The security of the city is the security of the people. If you live in a house of bricks, well, you aren't afraid of the big bad wolf, but not so if you live in a house with walls made of straw. It affects your security. And no people can stand as a people, a nation in their own right, with a capital that lies in ruins. No, the capital must be strong. It must be secure. It must be defended, and it must be fit to be defended. For if the capital falls, it all falls, as Vladimir knows very well. And yes, they were part of the Persian Empire. They were in a region known as Beyond the River, Uh, That's what it's called and referred to in Ezra. But one day, of course, the people of God have ambition for greater things than that. They're going to be a country in their own right. But they need a city. But it has no walls and cinders for gates right there and then. But just as there are gaps coming in the wall later on in Nehemiah, there are gaps here in this information. We don't know the reasons for the present crisis. We know that the temple was rebuilt, the temple now, not, not the walls, the temple, under Zerubbabel. Uh, we see, we've seen that in recent months. 
We also know that there was more than just the temple being built in Ezra from a short passage in Ezra 4. Uh, this is part of this letter that was sent to Artaxerxes. It said this, Be it known to the king that the Jews who came up from you to us have gone to Jerusalem. They are rebuilding that rebellious and wicked city. They are finishing the walls and repairing the foundations. So they had in some way, started on the walls. I think there's exaggeration in this letter, and there's probably exaggeration there. They'd certainly started the walls in Ezra chapter 4. But then, of course, there was that declaration at the end of Ezra 4 where the legal ruling came from, in fact, the same king, Artaxerxes, to tell them to stop the building. So was that as far as they got? Possibly, possibly. Now, that's in that slightly complicated jumping around in dates chapter uh, where there's a kind of like... And catalogue of all the opposition that they faced through all the years to summarise it, that complicates things a little bit. But it does seem likely that this effort was the one and only attempt as far as repairing the walls and foundations of the city were, and it was stopped. So that, that seems to be as far as it went. So from that we can assume that the city is still more or less in the condition that it was after the invasion of Nebuchadnezzar 120 years ago from, Ezra, from Nehemiah's point of view. With the exception, of course, with that repaired, repaired temple in the midst of it, where the walls are taken apart and he's used his firepower to burn the gates down and all this bad news comes to Nehemiah by word of mouth. Secondly, I want to talk about word of prayer. These words are hard to hear uh, from Nehemiah's perspective. And, and as I said, it shows us his heart, doesn't it? His concern for the people, his concern from the city. Uh, this word of mouth report from his brother, it, it, it's difficult for him. And what happens is it, it takes his knees from under him, as we might say. And that's very close to the truth. For as we read, he, he, as soon as he hears this, he, he, he sat down and he, and he wept and he, and he mourned. It, it impacted him greatly. It really impacts him. It's, it's on his mind as he does his work in the king's court, tasting his wine or eating his food at the dining table before him. As he puts his head on the pillow at night, it's, it's in his head. And that might seem a little strange because he, he had a, a really good job 900 miles away. What concern was it to him? He's, he's his own life to live. I mean, he's in another place. Surely that's somebody else's concern. But we are the people of God. So when one part suffers, every part suffers with it, Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 12, 26. If the people are disgraced in another place, it's supposed to matter to us that they are disgraced in another place. If they're lacking security in another place, it's supposed to matter to us that they're lacking security in another place. For we are one people. And we are disgraced with them. And of course, this was not just another place. This was Jerusalem. This was the city of God. This was his citadel. This was Zion. This was a slight on God's name. The longer it remained destroyed, this was a slight on the glory of God, in fact. And this solidarity in Nehemiah's heart shows itself as he begins to fast and to pray, as he begins to approach the God of heaven, which, of course, is the right place for him to turn to. Because worrying... Can't add an hour to your life, says Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. And appealing to lesser powers, well, that's not the best you can do. No, you appeal higher. That's the best use of your time. That's the best thing to do by praying. 
appealing to the sovereign Lord who made everyone and everything and who made everywhere. That's the best course of action, isn't it? Let's face it. This reminds us of, of where our go-to should be. Not to panic when that thing happens. Not to worry yourself into grey hair or furrows on your brow or more grey hair or more furrows on your brow. But instead, to approach the God of heaven about it. For that's as high as you can go. And in fact, that's where you need to go. Whatever the issue, big or small, whatever the nature of it, he's our heavenly father. He wants to hear about it. He loves to hear about it from us, his people. We sang from heaven you came, helpless babe. That, that takes me back to primary seven. We used to sing that in assembly in primary seven. That's not yesterday. In Randallstown Central Primary School, right? I was, in fact, I drove past it the other day and it reminded me of that as well. And t- taking a trip down memory lane, right? But we also sang at, at the same time a song called Did You Ever Talk to God Above? Tell him that you need a friend to love. Tell him all your cares and woes. Every tiny little tear he knows. That's not a children's song. That's really true. Isn't it? Did you ever talk to God above? Did you ever talk to God above about it? That thing that's really bothering you. Jesus has given us that wonderful access. So we must use it. When I was at the Irish Baptist College, someone asked one of my lecturers if Christians were liars when they sang. What a question. (laughs) Here I am, wholly available. Take my silver and my gold, not a mite would I withhold. Jesus, all for Jesus, all I am and have and ever hope to be. Are Christians liars? They asked him. He was a very wise man. He's still there. I'll tell Tim who he is later. And, And he said this to me, to us. I prefer not to see these things as lies and more as aspiration. That's good, isn't it? I thought, I thought that was really good because you, you know, that, that's, that's, not, that's not something you're telling lies about. That's something you're aiming for. That's better. As we come to what some have called Nehemiah's perfect prayer, it could cause us to despair, yeah, with how good it is. It could cause us to maybe feel guilty with how wholesome and, and selfless it is. We, we, yeah, but better this morning that gives us something to aim at. Because none of us are perfect at prayer, certainly not I. None of us are great at it, certainly not I. None of us have graduated from the school of prayer. None of us are without need for improvement or reminder or help in this, in this area. And God has given us in Nehemiah chapter 1 a reminder and help and a scope for improvement this morning. Because the elements of this prayer, as we'll look at them in a moment, from the lips of Nehemiah, have been a model for God's people down the centuries. Now, Nehemiah has, a, has an arrow prayer coming very soon. A quick, on-the-spot sort of prayer. And there's, there's need for that sometimes, isn't there? But there's a longer prayer, too, for when time is not so short. That's what this is. And we need times not so short with God, no matter how busy life seems to be. Look at what it contains with me. First of all, adoration. Nehemiah worships God for who he is. Adoration. Before you ask for anything, remember who you're coming to. For we're coming to the ear of the king in all his glory. O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God. He's awesome. 
And that's not like an American would say awesome. Awesome is, is, is as in you're, you're standing at the foot of Mount Sinai and there's, and there's lightning going off and there's thunder rumbling. That's awesome, right? That's who we come to. And look at his faithfulness. This is the God who, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keeps his commandments. Keeps, keeps, because, because the, the opposite is, is breaks and you know that's what got the people in, the, in, the, in their trouble in the first place. But he keeps it. Steadfast love. That's our Hebrew word that I teach you often. The only one in the Old Testament you really, really, really need to know. Hesed. 239 times. Steadfast love. Covenant love. Surely goodness and chesed will follow me all the days of my life. Psalm 23, it's, it's mercy. It's, it's God's steadfast love for his people. It's there. Adoration, telling God who he is. Not because he doesn't know who he is, but so that we are aware as we, as we approach him of who he is. So we don't come flippantly or half-heartedly or punching the clock or rubbing the lucky charm or whatever you might do to get what you want. No, no, you don't do that. Followed in the prayer by, secondly, confession. Did you notice that? Nehemiah takes time to confess the sins of the people, for indeed they have sinned. They have disobeyed. There's a corporate nature to this. He's praying for the people, God's people. The sins of the people of Israel, he, he prays. We have sinned against you. We have sinned against you. And then Nehemiah takes time as well to confess his own sins and the sins of his brother even here. I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you. We have not kept the commandments, the statutes, the rules that you commanded Moses. He's not perfect. Nehemiah, he sinned as well. Adoration and confession are another way of saying that the prayer states what God is like and what we are like as people. He's perfect and awesome and powerful and just and, and that's good. That's the one you want to be praying to, of course. And we, we are, we are flawed, we lack strength, our judgment is often more than a little skewed. That's us. And, of course, God, again, isn't ignorant of who we are. He doesn't need us to tell him. No, it's that we need to remember. So our approach is right. So before we ask for anything, it's good to remember those things. Thirdly, we come to scriptural requests. It's sometimes hard to know the will of God when we pray. Isn't that right? Sometimes the Holy Spirit will Pray for us in this, uh, in, in something of a mysterious way. That, that's what I believe the Apostle Paul means in Romans 8 when he writes, Likewise, the Spirit helps in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. But how do, how do you know what to pray for? Maybe God will not heal Granny. Maybe she is soon on her way to heaven if she knows Jesus. Maybe that job promotion is for you. Maybe it's not for you. Maybe it's his plan for you to have a baby. Maybe it's not. And, and that's a really big trial for some, right? Maybe it, it's, it's, it's sometimes hard, isn't it, to know what to pray. But I want to say that what you can be sure of 
is Scripture. For you can pray Scripture back to God, knowing that that is indeed his will. Because think about think of it like this. You can pray that, that God's kingdom will come. That's scriptural, to pray that. Thy kingdom come, Lord's Prayer. You can pray that God will send laborers into the harvest on the mission field because across the world and outside our front door because we're told to. Pray, therefore, to the Lord of the harvest, says Jesus. You can pray that God will, Ephesians 3, verse 16, according to the riches of his glory, grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. You could pray like that because that's what God is, is going to do. I have no issue with praying for healing, not at all. But first and foremost, we should pray that whether Granny improves physically, that she would grow spiritually and in her walk with Christ. Because you know what? That's primary. That's primary. If she knows him, that's primary. It always is in a fallen world where none of us make it out alive. It's primary to grow spiritually. To pray that Christ would sustain him, her, you, us. That his love will sustain you. That you will find your all in him. Your satisfaction in him. That whether God provides you that job, you'll still know Christ all the closer. That whether you find a marriage partner, a a husband or a wife, you'll, you'll live to glorify God. That no matter the new circumstances of this year and all the challenges, you will be able to grow in your faith and appreciation of the Savior. That's his desire. That's scriptural. Ephesians 3.16, have a a read at it when you get home. He wants you to grow in godliness and appreciation and love for Christ. So you can pray for that. (laughs) Nehemiah's prayer is full of scripture. Did you notice it? He mentions Moses and then he quotes Moses at great length in the... uh, Passages at parts of Leviticus, but also in particular at Deuteronomy 30 verses 1 to 4 is, 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 is all there in, in verse 8. That's the part um, of scattering and gathering. He prays back scripture. And he uses that word remember in verse 8. Remember your word, God. Remember it. Remember what you said. Again, God hasn't forgotten it. <laughs> Not a bit of it. But again, we need to remember his priorities and ways. We need to remember what he says, for we need to get on track, because that's his plan. And in that, we will see our prayers answered. Finally, we come to the word of God this morning. Something remarkable happens in this prayer. A change. For it starts with, Nehemiah being concerned and standing with his suffering people in Jerusalem in their shame and great trouble and disgrace. He's praying for God to to make a place for his name to dwell there at the end of verse 9. And then by the end in verse 11, he's saying this, O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man, sorry, success and, and mercy in the sight of this man, what's he talking about? 
the man turns out to be the king, Artaxerxes, but, but pardon, what, what, what are you, where are you going with this, Nehemiah? Do you, do you see what's happening? Because since when was there anything for Nehemiah to do? He, he's 900 miles away. <laughs> he's, he's living, he's got a really good job and he's, 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 he doesn't live there and, and yeah, he'll, he'll pray for them. He can pray, but he doesn't need to do anything else. Isn't that right? Does he? Sometimes when we're praying, God moves us by his word, by his power, to see that it is us, the very person praying, that he's calling to the task. And that may even surprise us. In fact, it really does surprise us at times. His word is powerful and can do that. It can happen in sermons where there is a need and God speaks. It can cer- I can certainly say it has happened in my personal experience. What about you? It can happen as we pray using scripture, like Nehemiah does. When you're praying for that unsaved friend of yours and God reminds you of Acts chapter 1 verse 8, you shall be my witnesses. Or when you're praying for missionaries and God is lining up your passion for those people and the circumstances of your life to mean he's actually calling you. His word is powerful. Enough, powerful enough to make the prayer the one who will be the answer to the prayer. The hands and feet of God in the world to carry that out. Where the one noticing the need is the very one God will use to answer their own prayer. There's precedent for this. When the Old Testament peters out at the end of Malachi, once again there's a note of failure, failure of the people, failure of completeness to come to be, where any solutions that were enjoyed during the Old Testament were never really lasting or, or they, they were just temporary, the people were still a little bit wayward. Even at the end of Nehemiah, we, we finished with a kind of something close to failure. God, good but, good but not quite good enough. Always somewhat inadequate. But there's a solution. A prayer answered. And God sends from himself the answer. Even so come Lord Jesus the first time. That's the answer. He sends the word of God in human flesh in an unexpected giving of oneself. Now it was predicted and prophesied, yes, but it still came as a shock. Most people didn't join the dots that way. They, didn't, they expected a, a man to be God's suffering servant. They expected a king in the line of David to rule politically. But for the king in the line of David to actually be the suffering servant, uh, a real man who was God in the flesh, well, that wasn't on their radar for the new brave leader of men and women. No, it wasn't. Where their need exists and God acts himself to meet the need. That's the That's the principle, isn't it? That's the precedent. The need for a perfect one, the need for a sinless one, the need for a substitute for the sinful people, someone who would not act corruptly or sinfully, someone who would take their place, someone who could keep those commandments that even Nehemiah breaks, one through ten, all of them. Someone who's like a prophet, like Moses from among you, from from your brothers, and you shall listen to him, as was promised. Someone who will give the wayward people a new heart and his own spirit to work in them. Someone who will gather the people to the new heaven and the new earth where they will dwell with him forever, reigning with him and serving him in glorified bodies. 
Nehemiah prays that God would be attentive to his prayer and have his eyes open, and he is. And the answer is that God has moved in the heart of Nehemiah to be the answer. To be the brave man who takes on the task in God's strength. Who's going to have to ask the king to step away from his important rule to a more important rule in the court of the king of kings. Moses was initially reticent, remember? He said, here I am, send Aaron. He's much better with speeches than me. But no, Nehemiah, he's willing. He's willing to lead And all that happened between the start and the end of the prayer. Out of the blue, he's the unexpected leader of men. And it's an unexpected giving of oneself. You'll have heard of the story of wee Johnny, who didn't have any money to put in the offering plate. I wonder has that ever happened to you? And so he took the offering plate, it was a wicker one, you know, and he set it in the middle of the aisle and he stood in it, two feet, and he said, I'm giving myself. But that's not just the call on the naive wee Johnnies. That's the call on all of us. I am all in. That God has been at work in my life and I am all in. He made the heavens and the earth and he holds my life and breath in his hand, so I am all in. He loves me without condition because he sent his son to die for me, so you know what? I'm all in. What's your next step in obedience? Is it stepping up and telling those colleagues that you're a Christian and what that means in work? Is it stepping up and taking a story at Pathfinders maybe? Is it stepping up to visit someone in our church who really needs encouragement? Is it, is it stepping up by praying publicly at the prayer meeting or at the communion table for the first time as weak and wobbly as we all are in our words? Is it commitment to the church here Is it theological study? Is it speaking at the prayer meeting? I don't know what it is, but God is using his word to say something, isn't he? Because there are no wasted words with God. Nehemiah sees the need and ends up being the very one who God uses to meet it. And all that happens between verse 5 and verse 11. And we're so thankful, aren't we, that God has met our need in Jesus. Let's bow our heads together in prayer. Heavenly Father, we, we worship you in, for who you are in all your glory. We're sorry for our sins and how we have failed you in breaking your commandments. And yet we look to Christ because you have met the need. You have answered the prayer in him. And giving of yourself in the, third, in the second person of the Trinity in Jesus. And sending your, uh, your son to be our saviour. To be our substitute. And in him we have that great example. Of giving as a servant gives to his master. Of being available. Of saying here I am wholly available. Not as a lie but as an aspiration in Christ. Give us that heart and desire. And we pray these things in his name. Amen.